I was raised a Jehovah's Witness, and um, there's a lot of confusion in that, uh, a lot of rules, and no uh, true answers. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, believe in Satan, but they don't believe in hell. And I'd have to say that that's a big lie. And though they do believe in Satan, um, someone once told me that one of the biggest lies that that Satan can get you to believe is that he's not real or that there's no punishment or there's no consequence. Even though I was out there believing that I wouldn't have any consequences, I would still know deep down that, um, that what I was doing was wrong. So I'd have to say the biggest thing um, would be not knowing that when I die, there's two options and that's it. Um, I was always raised to believe that when you die, you're just dead and that's kind of it. So yeah, it kind of pushed me away from, from religion and pushed me to claim agnostic, trying to be a part of the world and uh, trying to kind of turn my back on God because I just didn't know um, what to do. I mean, of course, every day, you know, he brings me through spiritual warfare, which is something that I've, uh, that I've experienced uh, since becoming a Christian, and it's very, very real. So um, on a daily basis, he, he strengthens me so that I can be what I believe the person that he created me to be. But, uh, but I've been hurt and, and unforgiving in different uh, relationships, even in relationships that I should not have been in. Um, since I've become a Christian, it's been easy for me to, to take a deep breath and, and try to find that grace within myself that God has given me and to, to forgive others and love others and understand that we're all just out here hurt, you know, and hurt people hurt people. It's really hard to move forward in life whenever you won't let go of the pain from the past. So, um, yeah, grace and forgiveness. I felt so much freedom in Christ when, when I learned that, yes, there is a heaven and I could go there. Yes, there is a hell and I could go there. And, um, and that God gives me the option to, and the ability, you know, by sending his son here for us, that, that I don't have to go to hell, that, that I could, you know, be with my heavenly father someday, so. The most amazing thing that I've probably learned about God is that he's always there, always there. And he has always been there and he will always be there. Um, it's amazing to see him work in my life as soon as um, I said, yes, I do believe in Jesus. Yes, I am a Christian. Um, my life completely changed. Everything changed. Um, relationships, school, work, uh, everything it just did a 180. And I can see where he has removed me from situations, where he has rearranged people in my life that, that I... Um, kind of forced the issue on them being there, knowing that they weren't good for me and not having the strength uh, for fear, I guess, of being alone, not realizing that you're never alone when you have Jesus. To see him work in my life has been the most amazing, the most amazing experience um, because it's all so real. Um, I think people don't realize how real it all is and, and there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is God, there is Satan. Um, and, and you really have to evaluate your life and your choices to make sure that you're on the right side of things. And um, I guess all I can say is I'm really excited to see how he's gonna pull me through uh, what he's preparing me for right now so that I can get to the next step for him.
My name is Tierra Isbell, and this is my story. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Good morning. I am so thankful for Tierra. She has, I love you, you're so awesome. She has one of the best personalities in the world. Thank you, Tierra, for sharing your story with us. It means so much to us that you would do that. You know, I, I, um, she's a wonderful lady. She's a wonderful mom. And I'm so thankful she's a partner here with us at South City. We baptized her, and so are we, yes. We baptized her last week. Um, and God is doing so much in her and through her. And listen, it took a lot of courage. If you heard that story, it took a lot of courage for Tierra to stand up out of this uh, Jehovah's Witness religion, through this man-made religion that doesn't follow all the, the, the word of God, and stand up and say, no, I'm going to follow the Bible and, and, the, and the God of the Bible, and stand up to her family. It took a lot of courage. And uh, so I'm just so thankful for you, Tierra. And her, her story has honestly reminded me of another lady in Scripture, again, another extremely brave woman uh, who had to stand up and say, no, I'm going to believe the God of the Bible, and I'm going to take a chance, I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to put all that I am into this faith uh, in this God. So this morning, we're going to talk about the story of Rahab. Many of you are familiar with the story of Rahab. Uh, I want to tell you her story. Before I get into her specific story, I want to kind of give you some context. Um, The nation of Israel has been delivered from uh, Pharaoh and from Egypt, okay? You remember the plagues and May, uh, Moses saying, you know, let my people go, and, and he's let them go, and they have uh, crossed the Red Sea on dry land. It's an incredible miracle of God. And they go over, and then they, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to find their way. They're grumbling. It's, it's a crazy season. Uh, then God gives them, you know, the uh, commandments at Mount Sinai, then, and he's writing, Moses is writing about these things, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? And so Leviticus is kind of his, uh, God's way of saying, this is how you live with a holy people. And so as he writes that, the people are trying to figure it all out. And then we see it, uh, even at Mount Sinai, they're kind of saying, well, how many are, 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 are we? You know, how many fighting men do we have? How many people do we have? What does this look like? And so we get the book of Numbers. And it's in Numbers that we hear this first story of Moses choosing to send out spies into the promised land. They're close enough to the promised land. They've made their way that they're going to send spies into the promised land. You remember this? And so Moses sends 12 spies. He sends one from every tribe in the nation of Israel. And in doing so, they go in for 40 days and they see amazing things. They come back after those 40 days and 10 of them say, really negative things. They're like, we can't, we can't do this. This is, we can't go into this place. There's giants, like not figuratively, like, no, they're, they're big, huge people who will kill us and squash us like ants. Like we can't go into this land. 10 of them had a sort of a negative perspective. And and Caleb comes back and Caleb's like, this is the land God has given us. Let's go. He's excited. He's, he's encouraged and he's ready to go. He's ready to do something. Fortunately, the, the people choose to follow the negative, and they follow uh, out of fear instead of following God out of faith, which is going to be sort of a recurring theme sometimes for the uh, nation of Israel. So God, you know, chooses to allow them to wander in the desert for how many years? 
40 years, which is one year for every day that they were in the promised land, which is interesting. So they've got 40 years to wander in the wilderness. And God even tells them in the wilderness, everybody who's 20 years old or older, you're going to die in the wilderness. So he gave them the grace to at least continue to live, but the rest of their lives was lived in the wilderness, wandering and grumbling in a difficult situation. So they die in the wilderness, and, and the story continues to roll on. And as they grumble and slowly die off, Moses is getting old, of old age as well, and he's not going to see the promised land either. And so he lays his hand on this next leader, Joshua, which I can't even imagine the, kind of that mantle being given uh, to me. You know, this is given to Joshua. Joshua is now going to lead this next generation. And so you can think about all the significance. I just, when I think about this story, there's so much historical significance in this story. It's incredible. For the, the people who have lived in the previous generation, who walked across dry land in the Red Sea, right? That other generation, they're, die, they're dying off. And now there's a new generation, and Joshua is about to lead them into the promised land. This is kind of where our story starts and kind of begins where we're going to look at today. Uh, Joshua leads the nation right up to uh, the Jordan River. And so he does something interesting. He does sort of some of the same thing that Moses did. Moses had sent 10 spies into the promised land. Now Joshua's going to send two. That's an interesting number to me. I don't know. It just The two came back with a positive response. And now Joshua's one of those. It was Joshua and Caleb. And now he says, we only need two guys, right? You almost just see even in that decision, faith, I'm following in faith. We just send two. That's all that will come back. It will be a good thing. They go in. And, of course, they go into this woman's house. Her name is Rahab. Now, Rahab is a prostitute. And so it wouldn't have been that strange for Rahab to have different men coming in and out of her home, different hours of the night. So it's good cover, if you would, for these spies to go into their home because maybe they won't be seen. But the problem is they were seen. And they tell the king of Jericho that they're spies from Israel in their city gates. And so the king sends guards to Rahab's home. They're knocking on the door. Send the spies out. Bring them out. Rahab goes to the door, and she does something very interesting. So she says, yeah, they were here, but I sent them away, and they're, and they're, they're gone out, out to city gates. If you hurry, you can catch them. You can find them. Well, that was a lie. She lies to those guards, and she actually sends the spies to her roof. And the spies are on the roof, and they're hiding out. And she goes up to the roof after the guards have left. She goes to the roof and she begins to talk to them about this God that they serve. Now, she is not uh, an Israelite. (laughs) She is not part of this chosen group. She is somebody who is on the outside. In fact, you could consider her an enemy of God. And yet she has seen the works of God and she's believing these things that she's heard about what God is doing. It's an incredible Incredible moment that she's saying these things. She says to them, she says, we've heard about these stories. She says, our hearts, the hearts of the people of Jericho are melting within us. And she acknowledges, she says, your God is the only God worthy to be worshiped, worthy to be followed. So she's making a statement of her own faith. And she even says this, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. She knows in her heart that God is the God of the Bible. He's a true, one true God. Even though her people, her tribe don't follow him, she believes that he's the one true God. And she tells uh, the spies that she'd like to make a deal for her life. And that's where our story begins. Look in your word with me. Joshua chapter 2, 
Verse 12. I'm going to read our text. It says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and, and uh, all of your father's household. Verse 19. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in your house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now there's just a a whole lot of stuff going on in this situation. On the back of your card that we handed you this morning are two things. One is a little place where you can put your information and and, uh, get it to us so we can know who you are a little bit better and and contact you and let you know what's going on at South City. And above that is a section of of just a few little simple notes. And I've put a few of those notes out there from this story that we can glean from what God's trying to show us about Rahab's life. And the first one is this. She feared God. That's the first thing we see in this story is she's fearing God. She goes up to the roof after talking to the guards at at her gate or at her door, and she goes up and she gives a couple of examples of why she believes. She says, I heard the story about the Red Sea. Are you kidding me? You walked across the Red Sea on dry land? I mean, she's saying only God could do that. Only God, I heard that story, only God could do that. And then she says, I also heard the stories of the two Amorite kings. There were these two Amorite kings that, that uh, tried to come against the nation of Israel as they were coming through their lands. And the Israelites devastated them. And God gave them to the Israelites. So she says, I heard about the Red Sea, I heard about the Amorite kings, and clearly God is with you. She's saying, uh, everyone here is afraid. The, the courage that was within us has failed, is drained out of us. And then she says this very specific statement of faith in verse 11. Look what she says. She says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. It's very interesting. It feels like a very personal statement. It's like she's making a, you know, a point to the facts that have happened. Yeah, you went across the Red Sea and, and, and God gave you uh, the Amorite kings into your hand. But the reason he did that is because your God is the Lord, and he's God in heaven above and on the earth below. You can almost hear this personal testimony aspect of what she's saying. She's saying, I've heard enough from different people about this God of yours to believe for myself, and I want to believe. I don't want to die. I know that God has given you this land, and I want my family to live. 
What's interesting about this to me, if you'll notice kind of the, the sequence of events, is this. She's already spoken with the guards at the door. She already had the risk. She already took a risk that would have cost her life if they found out the truth. They would have killed her. And now she's negotiating for her life with these spies. This is what that says to me. It took an element of her own faith to put herself at risk. You see that? But it seems it makes sense to me that she would have gone to the guys and goes, hey, if the guards come up here, you're going to save my life? Right? I mean, that's, that's a better negotiating point, right? Leverage. It's not what she does. She takes it upon her own faith, what she believes about God, to speak to the guards and say, they're not here. She sends them away. In fact, James, we're going to read it in just a minute, says that is the faith that is credited to her as righteousness. And so she has the faith enough to say, hey, they're not here. In other words, I believe their God over you, and I'm going to send, them, I'm going to send you away so that you don't get them. I'm going to take the faith it takes to do that. Well, then later she goes up and begins to negotiate for her life and for that of her family. Here's the second thing. She focused on her future. She's focused on her future. This story, and every time, really everywhere we see the name Rahab for the most part, we see that her name is Rahab and her profession is prostitution, which is kind of an awful stigma that stays with her. But we, we see that this is what she's done. Uh, prostitutes from the beginning of time have been the marginalized of society. They've been the ones on the edge of society. In fact, Rahab's home is built as far, she's in a home as far as she can possibly be at the edge of a city and yet still be in the city. Do you see that? Even where she lives is in the city wall. It's as far away from the city and yet still in the city. Nobody grows up, no, no little girls grow up and say, you know, I just, I just hope one day I can be a prostitute. They don't. No, nobody grows up and says, I just, one day if I work really hard, I can become a whore. No, that is not the case. In fact, you get the sense that this profession is one that is, is created out of necessity or abuse. It's out of necessity or abuse, when there are no other options, when there are no other possibilities. This is something you do if you're trying to survive or if it's being forced upon you and your choice, your will has been taken out of the, of the equation. You're being forced to do this. This is an awful situation, and yet this is what she's known for. Rahab has been uh, known, she's been known to try and survive. All of her life she's been known to try and survive, and now we're seeing her try and survive again in these negotiations with these spies. She wants to save her life and that of her family. But what's important is, though that is how she's remembered and though that has been part of her past, listen, she doesn't let the shame of her past discourage the possibility of her future. She doesn't let the shame of her past discourage the possibility of who she can be and what God can do in her life. Even though it's a stigma that will stay with her, at least in scripture, so, so that we know who we're talking about. She says, this is not me. It might have been part of my past, but I have a hope for something else, and I'm going to believe in this God that I'm hearing about. Here's the third thing on your card. Her faith was active. I believe she had a faith of her own that led her to that point to say to those uh, guards in a very risky way, they're not here. 
They're not here. They've already gone, so chase them somewhere else. She didn't just sit around and hope that she's not, that she's not killed in this coming battle. Listen, the people of Jericho knew about Israel, clearly. And they knew they weren't far away. And they knew that where they had been, they had kind of tumbled over everybody that got in their way. And they're next. She didn't just sit around waiting, well, I guess we're going to die. I, swear, I kind of believe that only God could part the waters and only God could kill those kings. But no, she didn't do that. She put her faith into action. She, she did something. See, faith is more than just something we say. It's even more than something we just believe. Faith has to, has to have feet. Faith has to have feet. It's got to put us going in a direction of following Christ. This is what James says in James 2, 24. Look at it with me. James says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's hard to read that sometimes because it's convicting. If we hold up a mirror to ourselves, we go, is my faith moving me to action? Or is this just something I kind of hide deep in my heart and I don't like to talk about it and I don't really show? It doesn't change me. If it hadn't changed you, then you may not have it, right? Your faith, when it's real, when it's, when it's a change in your heart, when it's transformative discipleship, it moves you to action, James is saying faith alone is not enough. It's not enough just to say you believe in Jesus. In fact, he even says in that same book that the demons believe. He's saying you have the same thing that the demons have. You've got to have something more. That faith has to move you to living like you have faith, not just saying that you have faith. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, it's not about what you say. It's not about what you call me or the label you put over your life. What it's about is who you really are and how you're really living. That's what it's about. Do you know Jesus? Are you living it out? Because faith has to be more than words or belief. It's got to be a life of action and a life of obedience. That's what faith in Christ is. We continue our story. She sends the spies. I can see her hanging out the window, the cord draping down the window, and, and the spies looking up at her. And she says, uh, this is, we're good, right? We've made an oath. We've made a covenant, right? We're good. You're going to save me? They said, yeah, yeah, make sure this court is hanging out when we take the land. But do you notice the last verse of our text that we just read a little bit ago? <laughs> I like it. Right when, she, right when they leave, she puts the court out the window. Do you notice that? <laughs> I just think that's so interesting. They said, hey, when we come to take the land, make sure the court's out the window. In other words, when the battle begins, put the court out. Did she wait? Nope. She's like, I'm not taking any chances. Here's the cord, just in case, the cord right here, right Save, you know what I'm saying? She does not take any chances with saving her family, and neither should you. So the story goes on. We see Joshua now in this incredible leadership uh, position 
where Moses stood. He's, he's led the Israelites to cross over the Jordan River, which is at flood stage, right? It's just kind of making it that much more difficult, you would think, but not for our God. And God gives this new generation of Israelites an experience that their family had, that their predecessors had. And so their, their fathers, their mothers, the people who the, the generation before have gone across the Red Sea and dry land, and now Joshua is going to lead them across the Jordan River on dry land. It's this incredible, incredible moment. So he tells the people, he says, follow the priests. They're going to carry the ark. And as the people who are carrying the ark enter into the water and their feet hits the water, when their feet hit the water, he said the waters are going to recede and just begin to push up against themselves. Incredible. It's an incredible moment. And that's what we see happen. In fact, we even see Joshua making a point about the fact that, hey, this, this is what happened in the last generation, and God in his grace has allowed it to happen in our generation. Look what he says in Joshua 4, 23. He says, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. See that? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. There's several moments in this story where we see God doing things in ways that he's already done. They're like reflections of what he's already, miracles he's already done. He says there's reflections of those miracles. You know what that speaks to me? What it means to me is that your parents' experience of God is not enough to sustain you. Your parents' experience, their experiences with God, how they've learned that he's real, how they've learned that he provides, how they've learned to trust and follow him is not enough for you. You have to have your own experience with God, and yet God in his grace and goodness gives you opportunities to see. Do you see? Have you acknowledged it? Have you seen those moments and gone, yeah, I need to learn that for myself? I was thinking about my parents they went through a really difficult season with my brother, David. He had holes in his heart as a child, uh, all the way up until like five years old when they, when they had a very risky at the time open heart surgery. I can't imagine the fear on their hearts. I can't imagine the questions with God. Really, God, why? And yet I was reminded <laughs> that Lori and I walked through almost nine years of infertility and we were saying, really, God? Why? And yet God in his grace was offering us an opportunity to trust him in the way that our parents had to. You see, I think God gives us opportunities to learn. I just don't think we recognize them. I don't think we take advantage of those opportunities to go, look, this is kind of like what our parents did walking across dry land. We can learn like they did that he is so good. And he's a miracle-working God if we'll just pay attention to what he's doing. My question for you this morning is this. What are some of the ways that God has given you an opportunity to know him? When you think through your life, what are those things? He's saying, here's, here's a perfect opportunity. Do you lean into me? Do you find your hope and strength in me? Is your faith encouraged and grown in this moment in me? The other night I was putting my little girl down for bed, my oldest, Daisy, she's 11, and she had had an experience at school that was really scary. 
they heard some sirens going down the road, and it was a police chase right in front of their school. And so the police, for whatever reason, chose to put the school on lockdown. Well, anytime a school goes into lockdown nowadays, it's pretty scary because of all the school shootings and things. And so all the students and all the teachers thought that's what was happening. So here's my 11-year-old. She's already at a big new school that she doesn't know, and she's in a class, and all that she knows is the, the principal's over the, the intercom saying, this is not a test. This is not a drill. We are on active lockdown. And she says the teacher standing by the door with a metal chair ready to bonk somebody, and the ki- some kids are crying. Some kids are curled up, you know, freaking out. And it just, it hurt, even as I say it, it breaks my heart for my child that she had experienced that. But you know what? I said, Daisy, in that moment, you remember the verse we've talked about that says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. You remember that, Daisy? Yeah, Daddy, that's what I was saying. That's what I was praying. I said, did you pray? Did you say, God, I'm scared. Will you help me? Will you be? Absolutely, Daddy. And I was just reminded this week, God gives our children opportunities to learn about this faithful God that we know, praise God, because our experience, parents, is not enough for them. And kids, our experience as kids, we got to learn it. We got to see the opportunities that God gives us to learn more about him. Well, Joshua is ready to march into the city and God tells him, you're going to march around the city. Of course, for those of us who grew up in Sunday school, we know this, right? Joshua fought the battle at Jericho. Yeah, that sounded awful, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, But you know the story, right? So God tells uh, Joshua, you're going to march around the city, and you're going to do it uh, in seven days. So the first six days, you're going to march around the city one time a day. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around this city, which is about a half a mile. It's not like too too crazy. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around this city seven times. And so we kind of get this sense uh, that they've marched through six times, and we're going to drop in here to this text in Joshua 6, when Joshua says, and at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And then he puts, the, you see this little addendum, a crazy little addendum here. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. I don't know if you feel that like I do, but just think about the weight of the history of Israel in this moment, and God adds in this little story of this little prostitute, Rahab, and her family. Joshua's giving the greatest battle call he's ever given, and they're about to step into the promise of God. And we're going we're gonna to shout and the walls are going to come down. By the way, don't kill Rahab and her family because they hid the spies. It's just a strange sort of a little addendum. Verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out uh, from there the woman and all who belonged to her. As you swore to her, so the young men who had been uh, spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers 
whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This is the fourth thing on your card. She found favor with God. In this moment, she's found favor with God. And again, can you imagine this incredible historical moment for Israel? This is not about 40 years. This is about multiple generations. right? This is about Abraham. This is about the promise to, to Isaac. This is about the promise to Jacob. This is about the promise to all the forefathers. And now we're just into this part of the history, which is the last 40 years of grumbling and, and wandering in the wilderness. But think of all the national significance in this moment. And Joshua's ready to lead them in to Jericho. And yet there's this crazy little story of a prostitute who's an enemy of God. Or think about the leadership responsibility on Joshua's shoulders. He now stands in the place of Moses. He's about to step all that history on his shoulders and in his mind. And, and all these people waiting to see the promised land. And now he stands ready, poised to walk and lead them into the promised land and into battle. And yet with all of this stuff hanging over his head, the historical significance, the leadership pressure, Joshua remembers to be faithful and to honor the covenant with Rahab and those spies. He honors the oath with the prostitute. So he tells the guys, go in, get the family. They go in and they look for the cord, right? The red rope that's hanging out of her window. They find it, they bring her whole family, they bring them out, put them outside of, the, of uh, Israel camp to protect them. And they brought them out of this chaos because it's about to go down. And by the way, what's interesting is we know that the walls fell down, right? But it also says that they went into the wall, into her home to get her. So what's interesting is God, in the miraculous way that God does miraculous things, he knocks down all the wall maybe except for Rahab's home <laughs> so that they can go into her home and save her family out of that, maybe that one spot of the wall that's still standing. Who knows? But they bring them out. They bring them out. Joshua honors this oath and this covenant, and this family survives. Now, I see all kinds of little things, like I said, like, they're like reflections of God's miracles that he's, he's shown to the previous generation, and now he's shown to the next generation, and we're further generations on down getting to see the faithfulness of God and apply it to the faithfulness of God in our own lives. The first thing I see is that Moses sent spies into the land, 12 of them. All right, they came back, it wasn't a good report, and so they wander in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua sends two spies in. It's a little reflection. They come back and they're ready to take the land, and they do. The next thing I see is that Moses leads his people over the dry land of the Red Sea towards the Promised Land. And now Joshua has an opportunity to lead his people over dry land, over the Jordan, into the Promised Land, so that that generation has a sense of how amazing our God is. And then I want you to see this, this next one, which is even more fascinating. You see, the generation before this generation we're talking about, in Egypt, they were captive. They were held captive in Egypt. And Moses, went, as he goes in to say, let my people go, right? We remember the plagues and all these things. Well, the very last one is a serious one. It's the plague of death. And so Moses tells all the Israelites, listen, if you'll take an unblemished lamb, 
and you'll sacrifice that unblemished lamb and you'll put the blood of that lamb across the doorpost of your home. When the death angel comes in and he sees the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of your home, he will pass over your home. That's why it's called Passover. He will pass over your home and the firstborn son of your home will not die. Of course, anyone who didn't do that experienced death in their home, their firstborn son. So the people of, of Israel in that time understood, they understood the beauty that, that that little symbol of the blood over their doorpost rescued their home from death. And yet here in our story with Rahab, the Israelites tell her, say, put out the red cord over your window so that we'll know when we come back in here, this is the home we're supposed to save. This is the home that we're supposed to rescue we're supposed to deliver these people because of that sign over your window. And it's just this, why would the Lord allow this story to have a red cord? Who's got a red cord? I don't know. Maybe it's something that Jews had around or the, this, this tribe had around readily. I don't know. But the beauty of the significance of this, this moment is that with all that's going on nationally for Israel, that God puts this little story of redemption. It's not a little story, I don't think. But he, he puts this story of redemption and salvation in the middle of it. He's saying something to us about who God is. He's saying something to us about his character, his father's heart. And it wasn't just her deliverance. It wasn't just her salvation. God blesses her life. Look at the fifth thing on your card. It says, she flourished in a new community. She flourished in a new community. Verse 25 says, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The very last verse of our text is talking about not just her deliverance, it's talking about her life after, how God has blessed her. You see, she lost all her people, her whole tribe. They're all gone and destroyed. Yet she was welcomed into a new community, her faith saved her life, and gave her a new identity. Does that sound like you and me? When we believe in Jesus, that faith will save our eternal lives and the life we live today. And he will give us a new identity, not as who we've been, not as Rahab the prostitute, but as Rahab is something else, becoming something else. That's what God does. That's who he is. Matthew 1.5 is the chapter of the genealogy of Jesus. Look at it with me, Matthew 1, 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This gives us just a little bit more information about her life after the rescue. So the thing you might ask is, well, who's Solomon? Solomon was the prince of Judah, which is one of the tribes. He's the prince of Judah. What happens to you ladies if you marry a prince? What do you become? princess. Do you see this? Are you seeing the significance of this? God has taken a prostitute and made her a princess. Only God can do that kind of thing. Only God can write that kind of a story. And we're seeing a little bit more of how she's flourishing in this new community. She's married a prince. She's now a princess. She's had a child. God has blessed her with a family. And that son is Boaz. And if you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, 
then you know that she's raised a pretty good boy, hadn't she? And does that say something about her? Sure. Parents, when, when your kids are who they are, it's, it reflects on us. Have we done a good job? Something, that's not always the case, right? But it says something about the fact that she's a good, godly mother. God has flourished her life. Hebrews eleven thirty one says this, by faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, for those of us who've been around the Bible a little bit, we know Hebrews 11, is kind of, it's, got, it's got a name. It's called the chapter of the heroes of the faith. There's a whole list of people who are very important to our faith. Rahab the prostitute is in that list. Is that significant? That the enemy of God on the outskirts of an enemy town is saved and made to a princess. The fact that God has changed her so much that he's made her a a wife and a mother. And she's not only uh, any mom, she's she's the mother of Boaz. And beyond that, she's going down in history in the legacy of Israel as a hero of the faith, from an enemy of God to a hero of the faith. Incredible. Also, Matthew 1, 5 speaks to the fact that Rahab is in the line. Who, who comes from Rahab eventually? David, King David, and then King Jesus. So am I saying that there's a prostitute in Jesus' line? Yep. That's what I'm saying. God is a God who saves. He's a God who changes. He's an amazing storyteller, isn't he? If we'll take time to to see the story he's telling. So what what is it this morning that I want us to look from, glean from Rahab's life? I want to close real quick. It's this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from. uh, But God will rescue you if you will believe. If you will trust in him. And if you'll follow him, it's got to be more than just what you say. It's got to be what you do. It's got to be a real life lived for Christ. It means that from her story in the middle of all that was God, God was doing historically in the nation of Israel, that he made sure we understood he's a God of mercy. This beautiful story of redemption and mercy with this woman who didn't deserve it reminds me of this man who doesn't deserve it and has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That even if you're an outsider, even if you're an enemy of God, and you know what, you may be sitting here today and know nothing about God. You may have just come in with a friend, maybe you've been to church a lot, but you don't really know him, you don't really live for him. Well, if you don't know him as your savior, if you're not living for him as your, as your Lord, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. But you know what? Romans 5.10 says God reconciles enemies to himself. He saves enemies to himself. We were all enemies of God apart from knowing him. And if we know him now, he's reconciled. He's saved us. And he can do that for anyone. He not only saves and delivers us from destruction, but he wants to give us a new identity. (laughs) Are you still living in, in what you were? Are you still struggling in all that junk of your old life. No, listen, he wants to give you a new identity, to be a new creature, a new creation. He wants to give you a new family, which is a church, 
a city group, people who can love you and care for you and encourage you, bless you, pray for you, weep with you, celebrate with you, be a new community for you just as she received. He wants you to flourish and be blessed. Even as he says in Jeremiah 29, 11, that you would have hope and a future. That's what we see in Rahab's life. God's redemption, and not just his redemption, he flourishes her life. All right, so what do we see? Rahab feared God, and yet she believed. She believed, she trusted him. Her faith was moved to action. It wasn't just words. She didn't focus on who she was. She focused on who she could be. She found favor and mercy in the Lord, and it saved her and her family's life, and she flourished. Let me, let me ask you this question this morning. Are you flourishing? Are you flourishing? I'm not saying, do you not, you know, who has no problems? We're all going to have problems. We're all going to have struggles. We're all going to have medical issues. We're gonna, some of us are going to have uh, financial issues. Some of us are going to have marital issues. There's, everybody's got issues, Okay. But we can still flourish in the middle of the issues when we know where our help comes from. Are you flourishing? Have you, have you said, God, this is your story, it's not mine, so whatever happens in my life, I trust that you're leading me in a direction. She didn't know what would happen to go outside of that camp, to go outside of that, those city walls. Can you imagine? I don't know these people. They may eat me, I, you know? She didn't have a clue. But she's, she's led into this new community, and she's blessed. She's blessed, and God gives her so much blessing that she literally goes down with a legacy for her faith. From prostitute to princess, from enemy to hero of the faith, only God could tell a story like that. Who does he want to make you this morning? What does he want to do with your story? Because what's interesting is I even see the fact that in Scripture where she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute, it's, it's no longer about the fact that that's what she is. It's almost a badge of honor. Man, look what God saved me from. Listen, you don't have to come in here with any shame over addiction or prison time or, or anything that you've done because when God saves us, he saves us all from lostness, from brokenness, from being enemies of God. We, we were all there doesn't matter what's on the label that you used to wear. It's about the new label that you place on your heart and how you live it out in Christ. Who does God want you to be? He wants you to flourish. What experiences is he bringing in your life that you're kind of not recognizing as an opportunity to grow in your faith? Pray with me this morning. Father God, when I hear this story, I think about my own. I think about so many people that I know, Lord. We've, we've all at one time been enemies of God. We've all been far from you, Lord. And yet, in your grace, in your mercy, you deliver us through the blood of Jesus. So if we apply the blood over our lives, just as the Israelites did the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, just as Rahab did with a red cord out her window, God, we've said, Lord, we know that the only way we'll be saved is under the blood of Jesus alone. It'll be nothing that we've done, God. We can't earn it. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Would you save us, Lord? Our hope is in you. Our hope is in you. So Lord, if there's one person here this morning that's never trusted you, that has no relationship with you, that doesn't know you, God, may they just 
May they find me or one of our pastors or elders and say, I want to know him. I want my hope to be in him. I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to live a life, a new identity. I want to be in a new family. I want to flourish in the ways that God wants me to flourish. I need Jesus. I'm willing to leave my old tribe. I'm willing to stand up no matter the cost and let my faith be real and active to say, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you with all that I am. And I want to believe that you can make me something out of what I've been into who you want me to be. And it'll be a beautiful, beautiful transformation because you want us to flourish in abundant life. So God, we give you this morning. Help us to learn from the story of Rahab. Help us to have her bravery and help us to see the progression of your grace and goodness in her life. And may we see it in our own because that's the kind of God you are to lead us from who we've been to who you want us to be. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time as we celebrate communion together. We remember that gift of salvation. We remember that promise of your return. And together as the body of Christ, we hold this juice and this bread and we're gonna say, this is our reason for salvation, that Jesus has redeemed us. He and he alone. It's in your precious name we pray.